0: Dear Father, as we come today, God, uh, what we are asking is that you'll open up our hearts and our minds, that we will hear your word and that uh, you know what we need. You know the things in our life that uh, we're struggling with or that are pushing us down. Things like that, God, you can help us in all ways. So we're asking that through uh, Phil's message that we will Hear the things that we need to hear today because you're good God and we thank you for Jesus and uh, we know that all things come through Him. He is our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. I have lived for 54 years with at least five undeniable truths in my life. Five. Undeniable Truths. They're broken into two different categories, and I'm going to share both categories with you as I share all five of these undeniable truths. You may want to get your amen ready to go, because if you agree with any of these, feel free to put an amen at the end of it. Here we go. First category that really is fairly insignificant, but number one, undeniable truth in life. Learned this, I guess, right from the beginning. Fruits taste better than vegetables. Amen? Amen. All right, there's about five of us out there. Fruits taste better than vegetables. I like it, Dan, you're with me. Undeniable number truth. Now, I have not, or number two, truth. I have not known this for the full 54 years, but I'm going to give it 46 to 47, something along those lines. If you need glasses, you need glasses. That's an undeniable truth. If you need glasses, you need glasses. Now, that applies to a lot of different things in life. If you need this, you just need it. Medically, we can apply that to all kinds of different things. Spiritually, we can apply that. Relationally, we can apply that. If you need something, you just need it, and you ought to get it addressed. Now, that's the first category. I'm going to set those kind of on a back burner. The second category of my five undeniable truths go much deeper. They're spiritual in nature. I'm going to show them to you. I'm not just going to tell them to you. I'm going to show them to you. And again, if you have your amen out and ready to use it, use it. Truth number one, Jesus died on the cross. I've known that all my life. It is an undeniable truth. I have never questioned it. Jesus died on the cross. Undeniable truth, number, this would actually be number four, but number three. Three days later, he rose from the grave. Amen? Amen. Known it all my life, 54 years, I have lived with that undeniable truth. And then here's the last one. A 2,000-year movement has been built on these two premises. It's called Christianity. Amen? Amen. 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 Undeniable truths. That last one, though, is quite interesting to me. A 2,000-year movement has been built on these two premises, It's called Christianity. Do you know that God has advanced and protected that truth through one of the most personal yet powerful organizations the world has ever known? It's called the church. God has advanced and protected that last truth through his church for 2,000 years. This movement that we call Christianity, this movement that we personalize When God left this earth, when He ascended into heaven, He gave us His church to watch over that truth. But I've also come to understand that until people recognize that, these first two truths can be extremely difficult to wrap their heads around. Until Pentecost came and Peter preached there and thousands of people gave their lives to the Lord and became a part of the church, prior to Pentecost folks struggled with these first two truths that jesus died on the cross and three days later he rose from the grave and even today until people accept christianity for what it is and surround themselves with the church they can still find it very difficult to wrap their heads and their hearts around the first two in fact they can have questions that resonate very loudly within their heads and their hearts. And without the church, they can't find answers. The problem in situations like that is the questions speak louder than the answers. The questions always overshadow the answers until you find a way to get the answers you need. Somewhere within the midst of these last 2,000 years, in Christianity, people have come to believe that it is wrong to ask questions of God. It is wrong to have spiritual questions. Friends, it is not. It is not. Questions are not wrong. People will even carry that out to the point that they're afraid of questions because questions lead to doubts. And we have convinced ourselves that doubts are sin. And that means that we can never doubt Oh, you can doubt. You can doubt. Questions and doubts are the stone on which faith is sharpened. Don't ever be afraid to ask questions. Just know that when you ask questions of God, the answers will overshadow the questions if you will listen close enough. This morning, I want to show you three different types of questions that are asked in Scripture. And there are multiple others. These are just three that I want you to see because they are so personal. And I'm going to show you the way God answers questions like these for the people that ask them. The first one fits in the category of what I would refer to as a question of belief. Now, it could also be called a question of experience. So really, what we're talking about here is a foundational question that goes to the things that we have long believed, but now we're starting to wonder about. Join me in the Gospel of Luke, if you will, and I'll show you a couple of guys that had to wrestle with this. Luke chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Oh, I love this story. There are some elements to it that are quite fascinating to me, like this one. Why is Cleopas the only one that is named? There were two men, and that's very plain right from the beginning. Why are we only given the name of one? Why is that? I, I have let that resonate in my heart for years and years and years and years and here's the best answer that I have now I'm not saying that this is the only answer this is the best answer that I have we only know Cleopas's name because the other man remains unnamed so that we can plug our own name into the midst of the story so that you can find yourself in it you can plug yourself in or anybody else God leaves the name out Because it can be personalized unto us. There are some things that become very, very apparent about these guys. They were believers. They had been in Jerusalem. They had seen Jesus. More than likely, they had been around Him long before the crucifixion. It is entirely probable, not just possible, but probable that they were there for the crucifixion. Their hopes had been hung on Jesus And when he died, all of their hopes were dashed. It is a fair statement to say that they were disciples. They were disciples. Now, I'm not talking about the 12 disciples or who we know as the apostles. I'm talking about believers in Jesus that carry that name, disciple. Did you realize that there are more than 12 disciples in the New Testament? Oh, there are. And there are a ton of disciples today. If you're a believer in Jesus, you may very well carry that title yourself. Let me help make that a a little easier for you to accept. Disciple simply means Someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. That's a disciple. If those three things apply to your life, so does the title, disciple. These two men were disciples. But when Jesus died on the cross, and he was buried, by all appearances, by all appearances, their belief was in question. Now, as you really get into it, it would become fairly obvious that their belief was in question because Jesus did not do what they had wanted him to do. They wanted him to be the Redeemer of Israel. That's what they wanted. They wanted him to be a conquering king. So they were hoping, like the rest of the the Jews in that area, that that's what would happen. And when Jesus didn't come down off that cross, when he didn't bring a sword to put right everything in their world, their beliefs were shaken. They had questions. Still happens that way all the time. We have questions when God does not do what we want him to do or what we believe that he should do. So we end up with questions of belief. Oftentimes, those questions of belief could sound like this. Can I really trust God? Can I really trust Him? And again, because of whatever reason, we have found ourselves in a place where we don't think it's right to ask those questions. But do you realize, do you realize that the Lord invites us to? Let me show you a couple places in Scripture that teach us that so that you're not just taking my word for it. We'll start in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 62. By the way, if you're ever having a crisis of belief, Psalm 62 is the best place for you to set up housekeeping. Just get into it day after day after day after day after day after day day until your crisis is gone. Psalm chapter 62, verse 8, says very simply, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. When God invites us to pour out our heart before Him, He is inviting us to bring every question we might have to Him. If you're a Bible mapper, write in the front of your Bible, when I question God, and then go to Psalm chapter 62, verse 8, highlight it, underline it, and know that that's your first place to begin. From there, you can launch into a number of different passages that will help you or somebody else if they ever struggle with this issue. But don't stop in Psalm 62, verse 8. Go to other places like this in Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 15. Listen to what the writer says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God invites, God invites your questions he's not afraid of them and you shouldn't be either even questions of belief even if you would define those questions as a crisis of belief wondering if you can actually trust the Lord well it's time to talk to him about it and if you need a reminder go back to Luke 24 and take a look at what happened here Jesus entered their conversation They're walking along, talking on the way to Emmaus. And Jesus entered their conversation. He longs to enter yours as well. He longs to get into those conversations. So let him. So let him. And you might say, how do I do that? I understand praying, but how do I get to hear from him? Well, the pattern is established in Luke chapter 24 by opening up your Bibles. Do you catch that that's what Jesus did for them? Before they recognized him, he established an authority. But then he opened up the authority of the Bible for them. I love the fact that he does this. I love the fact that he does this. So he goes all the way back to Moses, somebody that they were familiar with, and walked them all the way through the prophets, so that over and over and over again, from Moses to the prophets, he could show them what Scripture had to say about the Messiah, about himself. So he just said, I'm going to get back into the Bible, and I'm going to show you what you know, I'm going to bring it back to memory for you, so that you can Trust it, and therefore you can trust me. By the way, the same practice still works. When you are having a crisis of belief, pull your Bible out. You go back to where you started, and then you rehearse those things over and over and over again. Maybe that means that you go back to the Gospel of John. If that's where you began your faith journey and your understanding of the Bible, then you go right back to the beginning. And you start reading in John chapter 1, and you make your way through John chapter 21. Maybe you read a chapter every day. It takes 21 days to do it. You read a chapter every day just to remind yourself of the undeniable truth that you have hung your hat on. From there, you go different places until your crisis disappears. That's exactly what Jesus did for these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opened the Bible to them. But I want to remind you to do this when you open your Bible you look for Jesus you look for Jesus if you're wrestling with doubts if those doubts and questions have progressed to the point of being a crisis you look for Jesus if you look close enough you'll find him everywhere in scripture I like the way Warren Wearsby says this take a look the key to understanding the Bible is to see Jesus Christ on every page it really is. You go looking for Jesus on every page, and you will find him. So that's how you get to hear back from the Lord. Oh, the Spirit will speak to you if you're listening. But when we are questioning, and we are doubting, and we are on the verge of a crisis, oftentimes we cannot hear the voice of the Spirit. So you listen in Scripture. But don't be afraid of your questions. Don't be afraid of your questions. God isn't. You bring them before him. And if need be, go to somebody in the church and get those questions answered. Well, once we make our way through a a question of belief, we can actually get into some deeper questions. We can go into ones that will challenge us even more. There's a, a step deeper than questioning our beliefs that I would call questioning our faith that can be somewhat terrifying. And it really applies to disciples, to believers, people that have given their lives to Christ. Well, things can happen that will cause us actually to question our faith. I don't know of anybody in the Bible that illustrates that more than a man named Thomas. You're probably familiar with his story, but if you're not, let's get into the gospel so that you can see it for yourself and maybe even find a new appreciation for this guy. John chapter 20. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands? Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to them, or said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Oh, I like Thomas a lot. We probably know him better by his nickname, Doubting Thomas. Through the years, though, I have found myself pointing fingers less at him and appreciating his raw honesty more and more. Early on in my walk with Christ, boy, I knew about Doubting Thomas. I'd grown up in Sunday school hearing his story, and I thought, how could he be like that? And then I grew up a little bit. I grew up in my faith and recognized that Thomas is a lot like all of us. There are moments because of things that happen in life where we question our faith. We question what we believe. For Thomas, there was nothing wrong with his request. He was simply saying that he needed a little bit more than the words of the other apostles or the words of other witnesses. He needed to see for himself. He needed to experience some things for himself. And God in his graciousness responded to Thomas's need. He still does the same for us, demonstrating that questions along these lines, questions of faith, are not sin. They are actually something that God appreciates, and He will respond when we invite Him into the conversation. I love that. Thomas illustrates it perfectly. There are a couple of things about Thomas that I appreciate so much that that they become flagship beliefs when I read this passage. Not undeniable truths, but flagship beliefs. Here they are, both of them. I don't want to be labeled during my weakest moments. Maybe you don't either. And number two, God is totally all right with my honest needs and questions. He really is. Thomas helps me understand that. But then, once I move past who Thomas is, in this tiny little passage, I get to see something about how God answers questions of faith, questions that are really challenging us. He does it in his own time. Now, I want you to let that resonate just a bit. He does it in his own time. Did you catch the fact that eight days passed before Thomas actually saw the Lord? The other apostles had already seen him. They'd already been with him. They'd already given Thomas their record of what had happened. And Thomas then says, unless I get to see him for myself and touch those holes, I won't believe. Jesus didn't show up instantly. He didn't appear before him like that. There was, there was an eight-day span before the Lord came. Why? Why? because God's timing is perfect. We don't know what else was happening in Thomas' life during those eight days, but God did. And when Jesus showed up, when Jesus brought the answer, it was perfect. It was perfect. When we are having a crisis of faith, when we are questioning our faith, my friends, you better learn to hold on to patience and hold on tight because God will not always respond immediately to your questions. You hold on tight because God has to work some other things out and he will and his timing is perfect. So you have to trust it and it may be longer than eight days. So you trust it. It's interesting to me how God drives home points when I am studying for different messages and just this past week, God did it twice. As I was exploring Thomas' story, I got a phone call from a friend of mine in Colorado. He wanted me to pray with him because he and his wife were praying over some things and still are over some things in their lives that have become, well, they've become a crisis. And they're not sure what to do about it. And they're not sure to how to handle it. And he called me and this was his statement right at the beginning. He said, I am having a really hard time trusting right now. So I need you to pray for me. He's been a Christian a long time, a long time. And I said, then let's pray. And we did. And I committed to keep praying for him and his wife until the answers come. But I encouraged him to remain faithful in it. And he said, I needed to hear that because I was pretty much believing that God didn't care anymore. And so we got to talk about it and pray about it. Talked with a lady right here in Libby that's going through a, a new season in life. And she's having questions of faith. So she asked me if I'd pray with her about it. We've been praying together, and we'll continue to do that until the answers come and the crisis disappears. It is okay to bring questions like this, but you wait on God. You wait on God. Don't you give up in these moments. You wait on God. Keep asking, but then you wait for the answer. Jeff Anderson does a good job of capturing that idea. He says, whatever it is that you're walking toward, as you keep walking, God gives you just what you need at the moment to fuel your faith and keep moving. There'll be periods of silence, waiting, uncertainty, and even doubt. Expect those, then refuse to quit. Eventually, another encounter with God will come along to refuel your faith and remind you of what you desperately need to know. God is watching you and affirming his plans for you. If you have questions of faith, know that God is developing patience within you. Don't you quit. You stay with him. Then there are other questions. Once we move through questions of belief, questions of faith, there are other questions that will challenge us, uh, challenge us at the deepest of levels. I call them questions of identity. And there is probably nobody in Scripture that illustrates that better than an Old Testament character named Gideon. If you've never studied his story, I encourage you to do it. It's found in Judges chapter 6-8. through We don't have enough time to go through all of it. Man, I wish we did today because Gideon's story is you peel away layer after layer. It's like peeling an onion. And then you get right to the center of it and go, wow, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So if you've never studied Gideon's entire story, please do. Start in Judges chapter 6. In fact, that's where we're going to be today, but we're only going to pull out a few verses, starting with verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon, if you get into the whole story, is threshing wheat in the wine press. There are threshing floors designed for threshing wheat. He's in the wine press because Gideon is hiding from the Midianites. So he is threshing wheat in a hidden secret location so that they don't come steal his wheat that's what's going on and then God sends the angel to come and meet him in the midst of that and look at how the angel starts he starts out with this declaration that Gideon cannot wrap his mind around he starts out by saying and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him the Lord is with you O mighty man of valor he's hiding in the wine press And the angel says to him, the Lord be with you, O mighty man of valor. That is a foreign idea to him. And you get a a little more insight into that as you make your way through the verses that we just read. When the angel says to him, go in this strength that you have, Gideon's response is very simple. What strength are you talking about? I am from the weakest of the tribes and I am the least of the weakest. That's exactly how he saw himself. I am the least of the weakest, and you're calling me a mighty man of valor and trying to send me out to be a deliverer? What in the thunder are you talking about? Between the angel's first introduction to Gideon and Gideon's description of himself, you see questions of identity. Oh, he wrestles with belief. He wrestles with faith. All of that's detailed right there for you in just two verses. But it culminates, it culminates with questions of identity. How in the world is God going to use me? I am the least of the weakest. I am the least of the weakest. I know that we have people with us today that have wrestled with that same thing. And folks, until we get to a place where we can see ourselves the way God sees us, we will sit on the sidelines. But when you can see yourself the way God sees you, amazing opportunities sit in front of you. It is an issue of identity. Can I see myself the way God sees me? book of 1 John actually says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should carry that title. And when you can see yourself as a redeemed child of the King, then you can do whatever it is that God puts in front of you. You can face whatever it is that you have to face, but you must, listen, you must, pay attention, you must, Power through questions of identity to get to a place where you can accept how God sees you and you can see yourself the same way. And when you do, look out, look out. And I am absolutely convinced that questions are the best way to get there. To simply ask God how he sees you and then listen for the answer is one of the best things you can ever do in your life. But you have to accept the answer. So start with the question and listen for the answer and accept it. Accept it. That's why God isn't afraid of questions. Because He knows that when we ask them and we pay attention to the answer, it changes us. It's the transforming part of our relationship with Him. So ask the question. Jeff Anderson captures that pretty well again. He says, when you begin to follow God in a new direction, moments of great assurance are followed by seasons of great doubt. Gideon's story demonstrates that. Read it. Read it. You're going to see that he'll go through this and then doubt will creep right back in and then he'll push through the doubt. So he will wrestle with all of them. He will figure out his new identity. He will deal with faith and he will get to the place where he believes fully in who God is and then he will deliver the nation of Israel. It's amazing how he works his way backward through these three different crises to become who God wanted him to be. But it began with the last one to get to the first one still works that way you step out in faith and follow what you believe to be God's leading then you have a crisis in faith later you find some much-needed confidence and respond to what feels like God's voice then you go spiritually deaf and start doubting again walking with God is a test of endurance for your faith and it is it is but you walk with God you walk with God You ask your questions and you walk with God and know that when you're asking, God is applauding because to ask the question says, Lord, I want to go deeper. Ask your questions. Whether they are questions about salvation or whether they are questions about sanctification or whether they are questions about calling or identity, you ask your questions and trust that God is applauding as you do. Why not you stand? We'll pray together. Father in heaven, it'd be easy for us to believe that you don't want us to ask. In fact, through the years, it has been easy for us to believe that. Personally, I think that our enemy, your enemy, the devil causes us to think that our questions are wrong. So thank you for the gift of your spirit that speaks louder than the voice of the enemy so that the answers can be louder in our hearts and our minds and our souls than the questions. So Lord, make us bold to ask, patient to wait. And then, Father, when the answers come, Ground us solidly in our walk with you that we might be used by you. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.